I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast my guest today. He was the Chief Administrative Officer for the Regional Waterloo from 1991 to 2004. He had a long history of involvement with the Regional Waterloo, starting as a senior transportation planner in 1973. Before becoming the CAO, he moved up through the ranks at the region, holding the positions of Director of Planning, Director of Transportation, Director of Facilities, and Commissioner of Engineering. He was involved in some of the largest and most important projects in the development of the region, including the early planning stages of the ION. Today, however, we're going to talk about a significant environmental crisis that faced our region, and one that the region is still dealing with today. I'm pleased to welcome back to the Old Grey Mayors podcast, Jerry Thompson. Jerry, welcome from the left coast. Thank you very much. So, Jerry, you know, I've had you on a few times uh, because, you know, you've, you've, you've been in the center of a lot of very interesting uh, things from the history, the past of the region, like Toyota, uh, you know, the, the ION, um, even the, uh, for example, the uh, Research and Technology Park up in Waterloo. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting to have you on to, to come and talk about these things with us. Um, today, though, we're going to talk about the environmental crisis that occurred in Elmira. Um, and as I understand it at the time, I mean, you were, you were a resident of Elmira while this was going on. Isn't that correct? That's correct. As so, was Ken Sealy, the chair. Yeah. So, so two of the people that would have been front and center on this issue were actually living the experience. Exactly. So when we get into talking about, you know, water boiling or water bottles or dermal or, you know, issues, those are all things you personally had to deal with as well. Yes, that's both Ken and I did, uh, did have to deal with that. And of course, you know, our friends and neighbors uh, from various uh, aspects of our lives were very much involved in it. And we had to deal with them somewhere you know, on the side of, of the, the public health measures that we took and uh, others feeling, I guess, that their livelihoods were threatened as, as employees of Inoroyal Chemical were concerned about their, their economic future. Well, so the, the clash of objectives, which boiled over at times to, uh, you know, some contentious matters. Contentious yeah, matters. so I mean, in, in one sense, it's, it's good to know that the people that are dealing with the issue can have some sort of direct empathy with yes. what's happening. But at the same time, you're going to the grocery store or your wife or your kids are going to the grocery store or, or in the community. And they're going to hear about some of this stuff. Probably not, not always the good. Well, you know, just as an example, my neighbor across the street, who was a wonderful person, uh, was, a, was a, a major scientist with, uh, with Unirel in, in the chemical engineering. So, uh. you know, right across the street, you've got a, you know, we all met well, but there's a conflict of interests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no doubt a very difficult time, something we yeah. sometimes don't think about. Um, you know, for politicians, especially at the municipal level, when you're dealing with your day-to-day -day events and affairs, it's not like you can go, you're not living outside the community, you're directly in the heart of the community, which is in one sense good for knowing what's happening and what people are experiencing, but at the same time, can lead to some difficult, contentious moments. That's true. That's very true. So um, I, was, I was going through your book, 
uh, and and I saw uh, in your book you have this line. It's uh, the line goes: "The world changed for us on November 11th, 1989." That's right, it did. <laughs> and and what was the, what was the significance of that date? <laughs> well, it's significant in and of itself, but it's particularly significant to me because. Uh, <clears throat> I had just been appointed commissioner of engineering, chief engineer for the region, uh, just, just prior to that. And uh, we were dealing with a lot of issues in the engineering department uh, surrounding costs, overruns, and uh, time delays, and all the kinds of things that you encounter in an operational setting. And there were a lot of things to be fixed. So I was consumed with that. Um, so this came, as, as you just mentioned, on November the 11th, 19. 89. And at that point in time, we received a message from the Ministry of the Environment, who had the responsibility at that time to do well testing throughout the province. So it was a regular uh, event that they would test wells, particularly groundwater wells. Well, they're all groundwater wells, but test wells throughout the, the province, ours included, on a regular basis. So as of the testing on the 11th, they reported to us that they had discovered uh, a chemical in the water called N NDMA, uh, nitrosdimethylamine. And uh, it was determined very quickly that this particular chemical was highly, highly carcinogenic. So that sparked obviously an immediate concern. And uh, so we worked with the ministry for a little while, and I'm, and I'm talking about a few days here, not months, uh, trying to get a handle on what this stuff was. And, uh, but more concerningly, how long it had been there. Um, right, right. You know, I mean, it's one time, one thing to phone somebody up in a municipality and say, oh, by the way, in your groundwater system, we've found this terrible chemical. Well, no. the next question is, well, how terrible? And then the second question is, I mean, it just didn't disappear on the weekend. How long has it been there, and what are the potential public health consequences of this stuff being in the in the drinking water? Yeah, and Jerry, I just want to ask you this: um, this testing by the MOE was that the result of like this regular testing was the result of some other incident that occurred? Because this this incident was pre Walkerton, right? Walkerton happened after this situation, considerably after it, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, this was not prompted by anything other than a, a regular testing regime. Okay, And that's why, as I say, since it wasn't prompted by anything uh, preceding the, the discovery, um, you do have to ask, well, how did it get there, obviously, and how long has it been there? Because uh, this chemical uh, was cited to be highly carcinogenic. And uh, was the, uh, we, as we traced this thing a little bit, we found it was, it was fairly proximate to the Uniroyal chemical plant in Elmira. So they are a number one suspect from the beginning. That, that didn't, but that didn't come about, like right away you're wanting to know these other issues. And what was the MOE telling you about the seriousness of this contamination? Not very much. I mean, uh, you know, with all due respect, they, they seem to be completely inept. Uh, they really had no, I, no, no idea, no real um, suspicions with respect to where the contamination was was coming from or the degree to which it, the plume had extended itself in the aquifer. They had been dealing with Uniroyal chemical, uh, uh, you know, before that, I guess, as part of their, their normal mandate as, uh, as the Ministry of, uh, of uh, the Environment. 
And there were a lot of conversations that that went on there that were obliquely referred to as we began to delve into the subject, which made us wonder whether (laughs) the the suspicions should have been raised a lot earlier, just based on the circumstantial evidence, scientific evidence. And, uh, and, and how did that go? We never really got to the bottom of all that. That was a bit of a clouded mystery, and it was it was maintained as a clouded. Well, mystery. when you say clouded mystery, what are you referring to? The the, the, well, the cause or not the cause? I mean, the cause was identified, right? And we'll get yeah, to that. It was the, the the mystery was around how long had this been known? How long had this been a, a suspicion yeah. on the part of the MOE? What were the conversations with the MO, with the uh, Unirol chemical officials? You know, what was the background to this? We began okay. to ask questions. So this was before. So what conversations were happening with the MOE and Unirol, for example, before the region was informed? Well, there had been conversations, and that's about all I can say, because we never yeah. really got to the bottom of all of that. We didn't do an investigation you know, into that aspect of it. We were more consumed at that point in time with the situation as it existed on the ground. You know, exactly where is the contamination coming from? What is the scientific nature of the of the contaminant that's there? What are the potential health consequences? And what are the remedial actions that we will have to take? Those so were preoccupied. Yeah, for an issue like this, did the region have the region Waterloo have the staff or expertise necessary to deal with this sort of issue at that time? We were, we were geared up to a certain extent based on general responsibilities for water supply. We had established uh, it, as part of our operations center in Cambridge, uh, we had established a very sophisticated laboratory that uh, was capable of doing uh, some in-depth research with respect to uh, uh, uh both biological and, uh, and and other potential contaminants. And right. we, had, we had got into the mass spectroscopy business on a very serious level, <laughs> excuse me. And we had uh, two or three lead scientists in our lab who were extremely well qualified. So that, is, that wasn't established to deal with the Elmira situation. It was no, but that's, you had that though, you had those resources. To be able to monitor water quality in a general way. But we weren't, we weren't scientifically flat-footed. You know, we did have resources. We had to figure out how to employ those resources uh, to the to the current problem. But well, uh, let me ask you this: This is kind of interesting because now I'm just just wondering about the jurisdictional issues here. You've got the MOE, which is provincial, yeah, Ministry of the Environment. Uh, you know, identifying the problem and 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 testing these wells, and you've got the regional Waterloo, and because you know it's it's. Uh, why don't we just mention for a second uh, the source of our water for Region of Waterloo? Well, Region of Waterloo is the largest community in Canada, wholly reliant, or it was at that time, wholly reliant on groundwater. It, we had a huge groundwater system, and uh, the hydrogeology of our area uh, suggested that that was the appropriate way to go. <laughs> Plus, we didn't have any other sources, really. So uh, we, we, were, we were getting getting more sophisticated in hydrogeology. We hadn't, at that point in time, we actually hadn't even hired a hydrogeologist because we didn't, we didn't anticipate something of this nature, exact nature, but we had built, we had built the the, the laboratory facilities and we had a plan in place to deal with hydrogeologic questions uh, more uh, in depth, but we hadn't got there yet. So 
we were relying on the, uh, the, the Ministry of the Environment's testing and their laboratory capabilities in Toronto uh, to uh, keep the, the water supply system safe from, from that respect. Right. And, and, and just before this fateful November 11th date, yeah. you, I mean, you were working on the water treatment system. Wasn't that being updated or upgraded or improved uh, in, in the region? That was a big project you were working on at the time? Well, we had, because of the groundwater doesn't necessarily place itself strategically in exactly the right place. Right. <laughs> so in order to maximize our, our use of the groundwater, we developed over time the, what we call the Tri-City Water st uh, System, which linked the three cities together so that we could manage flows of, of groundwater and supply of groundwater you know, within the system. It was all interrelated and computer controlled. Gotcha. Oh, we're pretty so, sophisticated in that way. Yes. So, so now you've got the, the ministry telling you about it. So I guess you're initially, I guess, taking their, following their lead on this, like they're the, they're the source of information. Well, from a jurisdictional point of view, the ministry of the environment did have the lead. I mean, they were the agency responsible. Yeah. Uh, not that we didn't have an interest, but they in fact were the agency responsible and they were the people who purported to have, the scientific ability to deal with these things. And they did have very sophisticated laboratory facilities, no question. So if they're testing, and what, how, how often are they testing? Is this uh, annual, quarterly? How often no, is it, it was more like quarterly. I can't remember exactly, but yeah, maybe maybe uh, four times a year. Yeah. So wouldn't they, wouldn't they have had the historical data to tell you when and what, what, you know, what was the progress of this chemical in this well? Well, exactly. And that's what prompted the question after we found out uh, what they had found out. Uh, how long has this been going on? I mean, if you tested these wells three, six, 12 months ago and didn't find anything, and now all of a sudden you find contamination at a dangerous level, what's the history behind this? I mean, were you simply missing the, the, the information that, that you needed to make, a, to make decisions with respect to the safety of these wells or what was going on. And there was no clear, no clear answer to that. A lot of obfuscation and sort of backtracking, but no, no answer. They, 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 couldn't, they didn't release to you the documentation, the historical documentation? Well, they could, they could give us the documentation that said three or six months ago there was nothing there. But obviously there was something there because yeah. it, it doesn't develop overnight. What and when you first found out about it, was it at a, a, a dangerous contamination level when they first informed yes, it you was, about it? It was judged to be a dangerous contamination level. Yes, that's right. We very quickly uh, hired epidemiologists. Uh, hired a firm called Ecological, e Ecologic, I should say, and yep. uh, the person responsible there was a, a Dr. Ron Preacher. He was the chief epidemiologist, and so we started to delve into the uh, the health implications of all of this well, let me with, let me just step back for one sec and yeah. why don't we explain what this chemical was well it was a byproduct of the production of uh, agent orange uh, uh, uniraw chemical had a contract with the u.s military they were one of seven sites somewhere uh, uh to to have a contract to produce this chemical this defoliant and uh so the byproducts contained the chemical 
the chemical compositions of, of Agent Orange plus whatever other byproducts were there that made up the NDMA. They buried the byproducts in barrels adjacent to the plant, basically in the back 40, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. They and just that's, dug a hole, dug a hole and buried them. And, and, and that, that and these barrels were what, like aluminum, steel barrels? What were they? I think some of them were metal and some of them may have been plastic. But the but the the bottom line is that they leaked. It was an inappropriate, I mean, it was probably an illegal way to dispose of chemical waste. Yeah. But obviously this, very cost effective from the company's point of view. And when was this? So this is 89 when we're finding the problem. What, this is like the early like 72, the late 60s. What what time frame are they producing? Well, is it during during the Vietnam War? So the 60s, yeah. And yeah. And, and, and thereafter. And and a lot of the discussions. I think with the MOE, and I'm this is conjecture to a certain degree, surrounded the, the Uniroyal's practices, environmental practices. But the MOE seemed to be, they could talk all of, a lot, but yeah. they never did anything. And <laughs> Uniroyal was not prompted to do anything on their, on their own behalf. So it, the problem built, the barrels leaked, the NDMA leached into the into the groundwater table, into the aquifer, and plumes of this contaminate, contaminated water uh, reached out into the various well locations that we had in Elmira. There were about four, and we developed another one uh, at the south of Elmira as part of remediation, an attempt to remediate anyway or restore some groundwater supply to the town uh, a little bit little bit later. And so, it was it, it wound up being contaminated as yeah well. okay and that's what you all learned eventually but in the early weeks days yeah. weeks um who, who did, did the region have to step up and take charge on this i mean the, when did the communication to the community start we were dealing with an individual whose name is hardy wong and he was a i think a manager level not a director level uh, within the Ministry of the Environment. And he was responsible for this water testing program that I'm describing to you. And he was the person involved in discussions with Unirail Chemical before this about environmental practices. But but I said they generated no action. So uh, the MOE, MOE had the jurisdictional responsibility, but it became very clear very quickly that the MOE had neither the ability to deal with a situation like this or the will to deal with it. And uh, so there came a time very early in the process where we said, just step aside and let us do it because you're not doing it. And uh, maybe somewhat so, almost amazingly, they did step aside. I mean, we kept in communication with them. Right, right, but right. We said, we're, we're, we're gonna undertake the work. We're gonna undertake the, uh, the scientific work to, re to refine the detection levels through with the mass spectroscopy uh, procedures. Yep. Uh, and, and we'll do all of this work and uh, we'll settle the bill later. Right now, we've, there's a job to do here and it's got to get done in a hurry. So you, you started doing the measuring, the testing and the measuring your own, on your own. We did. And we started off with detection levels, which were the best the MOE could do at the time of, I, I think something around one parts per 100,000 or something like that. We were, they did, they couldn't, they, they couldn't go beyond that. We took it down to uh, parts per million and eventually to parts per trillion. So we actually made wow. 
scientific history in doing this, but nobody had done it before. And the reason we were doing that, we were trying to establish the cutoff level in terms of contamination. You know, right. if you find something at, at, that's dangerous at parts per hundred thousand, that's yes. one thing. If you yep. go to parts per million, does it disappear, you know, or become acceptable? Or, right, right. Where's the cutoff? Because that determines what you have to do in terms of remediation. And, and you see that often with uh, environmental assessments and they'll say, okay, this property has so many various chemicals. Here's the levels, but there's certain levels that are acceptable versus levels that are not acceptable. That are not, exactly. And actually with NDMA, that exactly what you said is true. At the same time, nobody really knew what the levels were. Like, you know, for certain chemicals, you'll, you'll come down to a parts per whatever, and, it, and, and below that it's deemed acceptable. In the case of NDMA, there was no such scale. So, so we had, what, we no, had no jurisdiction, no jurisdiction in North America, for example, had to deal with this issue. No, we were the first. We were wow. completely, completely on our own. And uh, and just back to the back to the MOE for a second. Wouldn't they have been monitoring the activities uh, of Uniroyal during prior to '89 from the time they were making Agent Orange on through, or was that not top let of me, mind? Let me rephrase your question. Should the MOE have been monitoring Unirail's activities during this period and doing something about whatever they found? Yes. They yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, because you always hear, oh, back in the day, this is what we did. And then at some point, obviously, we get into more stringent uh, environmental yeah. monitoring. But I guess there's this transitional phase where uh, in certain situations, it was far too lax and led still to problems. That's right. Okay. So, so who's, who's, who at the region took charge, Jerry? Who at the region? Well, I guess me. <laughs> As the commissioner? Uh, we, had a, we had a director of water supply who uh, would otherwise have been intimately involved with this, but for a variety of reasons, he, uh, he left us. And uh, so there was no director of water supply at this instant. And uh, I, uh, I took over the role as in addition to being the chief engineer. And we began to put, our, put a team together to deal with this. Uh, first of all, not necessarily first of all, but one of the elements, of course, was the, the scientific capacity with our, our laboratory uh, in, in, in Cambridge, at the operations center. Um, we uh, hired uh, CH. To M. Hill. They were an internationally recognized environmental company who had been involved in con contamination issues uh, on a, you know, around, around the world, actually. And Earl Shannon was their lead uh, engineer on that. At the same time, as, and we hired also uh, um, Gardner Roberts uh, to be our legal counsel. At the same time as that was happening, Uniroyal, of course, was hiring. Uh, Conestoga Rovers, who had gained a reputation for something similar to in the, in the Love Canal in Buffalo some years prior to that. Yeah. They were a well-established Waterloo company, which was kind of ironic because we had to hire somebody from outside the region to defend ourselves against a Waterloo company. And they well, hired, you know, they well that, that right, Jerry, right there is the, the difference. It, like this company, which is making the Agent Orange Maybe had an inkling they had a problem, so they're ready to pull the trigger on a plan. Oh yeah, they're while while the region got confronted with this like out of shock until you were able to get around to getting what you needed. A lot yeah. of the big players were gone already. 
That's <laughs> right. They've been scooped, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah very and common, the, the, very common to grab experts. <laughs> Unirel hired a bunch of, uh, and that's a pejorative way to put it. They hired a team of uh, Bay Street lawyers to uh, defend their. So we'll get to the we'll get to the legal stuff eventually. So um, at the time, though, was it uh, was it uh, known that it was Unirel when you first found out, or was this something that you eventually had to determine through investigation and testing? Well, the, the uh, geographical circumstantial evidence was overwhelming to anyone. I mean, yeah. the Unirol chemical was right there. And uh, it, 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 we knew that they made uh, carcinogenic or dealt with carcinogenic materials. Basically, they were a fertilizer company in Elmira. I mean, right. Unirol is a big company. But if, in Elmira, they were producing, at the point of this all came to light, they were producing fertilizer. They had, not, they had ceased to produce Agent Orange by this time, of course, the Vietnam War was over. <laughs> right. you know. But uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah, it didn't take a, a, a tremendous intellect to identify Unirail as the probable culprit. And and but did the barrels like were they unearthed? They come to light. You got to check. You got to see that with your own eyes, or what? What was that all about? Well, you know, there are people who work long term for for companies. They have a lot of historical experience and uh, uh, it came to light from long-term employees from Unirail that, yeah, yeah, they used to bury this stuff out here, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, the anecdotal, uh, the anecdotal yeah. evidence. So the picture starts to come together. It gets ro- more robust as more actors are included, more information comes to light. So did, did the, the region have to hire some investigators or how did you gather that, that evidence or information? We didn't, uh, we didn't investigate their on-site situation. It, it was documented. We, we, they actually admitted it, I mean, at, at early on in the process. Yeah, there had been stuff buried at this. We didn't need to establish that. Okay. It had to be dug up, and it was excavated, but the damage was done. Did they ever, uh, I don't know if you know this, like how many barrels of this carcinogen there was? Oh, I probably knew at the time, but I can't recall now. It was a lot of barrels. Yeah. It was a, it, that's where their waste was going. Wow. That was it. It wasn't so, being shipped to somewhere else. Okay, so, so, you, so the region gets this information November 11th, and then uh, what do you say? Hey, Elmira, you can't use the water November 11th. Sorry? What, like, what, how was the, what did the region do about water usage then for Elmira like it was an immediate you can't use the water Elmira or what was the no there was quite a scramble to gather information and put resources in place to be able to gather yet further information that that was a process that took days not weeks and months like we acted very quickly and the people that were involved in this were actually working around the clock seven days a week I mean it was very intensive effort we had distributed a lot of information uh, to the residents by hand, by public meeting and, and uh, otherwise, letting them know the situation we were dealing with. We didn't have enough information to cut the water supply off on day one. We very quickly accumulated enough information to realize that we had, excuse, excuse me, a, a serious health problem. We originally thought, given the level of contamination and, and the level of scientific knowledge we possessed at day one, that the carcinogen might be absorbed dermally. And uh, okay, and just to explain that, when you say dermally, you're meaning 
water contact through the skin. Exactly. Yeah. So with that in mind, <laughs> it's a pretty serious situation. Yeah. Uh, it, essentially, you, you, you'd have to evacuate the town. I mean, not only can you not consume the water, you can't take a shower or a bath or whatever. And right. uh, so it turned out that it did, did not dermally absorb. But at that point in time, we didn't know that it didn't. So we were faced with the logistics and implications of potentially evacuating Elmira. Yeah, so just, okay, that consideration obviously must have been early on. Like, are we talking in the it first was. few weeks? It right. Was. Yes. And, and you have an interesting story about investigating evacuation plans. <laughs> yeah, we started to think through what might be involved. And the, uh, the logistics of such a, a thing are actually quite they're pretty complicated. So <clears throat> it, you know, it, it seemed to us that it was a, a, an emergency worthy of, of getting some federal uh, help on. So we decided that if we actually had to evacuate and provide alternative places for people and all that goes with it, um, the army would be a, a useful resource. So I called Ottawa, spoke to the general who had responsibilities in this general area, and uh, I said, uh, you know, this is what we're faced with. Uh, we may have to do a mass evacuate, massive evacuation. Uh, can you can you give us any advice or help? And the general said, well, when you figure it out, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't call back. I was just thinking about that time. Didn't they evacuate Mississauga or something on a train derailment? Yeah. That's of, right. Yeah. Chemicals. There's an old Hazel McCallion uh, story there. <laughs> but. Um, we're talking about now um, the, the population of Elmira was approximately, uh, I don't know what it was. 7,000. 7,000. What about, what about farmers and wells and those sorts of things? I guess you had to check oh, all yeah. of that as well. Yeah. If it had been let go, uh, the plume definitely would have reached into the agricultural uh, areas around Elmira and could potentially have contaminated private wells in that area as well. The plume but did say, not. But, but when you say if it would have been let go, how do you contain it? Once you know about it, how do you contain it? Pump and treat. So we, you had to initiate that right away. Very quickly, yes. We, in order to, to you have to, to in order to deal with the plume of contamination, you have to know where it is, and you can't tell that from walking around on the surface. Right. So we had to drill. A number, I can't remember how many, but a, a large number of test wells all over the place to be able to determine the extent of the, of the plume's uh, migration. And, uh, and as I mentioned previously, too, the aquifer on the surface, on the, on the, well, you can't see the aquifer on the surface, of course, but it doesn't follow the, 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 the contours of the land that you see on the surface. The aquifer it is, is, is right. a distinct animal itself. Yeah, uh, people think well, water flows downhill. Yeah, but not not relative to the surface. It doesn't. It could be right. Good. Yeah, a hill a hill on the surface could be a, va a a valley underground in the aquifer. Yes, exactly. So we had to map all this. And once we knew where the plume was, we had a much better idea of where the plume was. Then we did start to pump and treat, and uh, we treated with uh, a, well fairly long. We. Uh, Chemicals like chlorine don't touch it. We we dealt we used uh, 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 ultraviolet, 
So, so you had to establish a treatment process. And when you say pump and treat, I mean, you can say it, but to actually do it must have been a significant undertaking. Well, it had never been done either. <laughs> so, not so with ultraviolet. What did you do? Not at scale. So, yeah, so it was a, yeah, that was another scientific breakthrough. How do you do this? And, uh, you know, I mean, things don't, they don't, they don't, don't just go whoosh. Uh, it's a slow migration, but it's a progressive migration. If you go long enough, it will it'll it'll spread and, and contaminate even further areas than than we saw at that time. So we began to look at remediation, and uh, we drilled uh, a new well at the south of uh, of Elmira, which was beyond at that point in time beyond the contamination plume, to buy us some time for water supply for the town. And there were a couple of wells as time went on. This is all based on an evolution of understanding and scientific ability, you know, which wasn't there in the first hour. It takes time right. to build that up. Yeah. But yeah. there were some wells at the north end as well that eventually we were able to put back online for limited periods based on the levels of, 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 of contaminant we were finding in those wells. So we cobbled a, a, a temporary system together right. because we knew we came pretty rapidly to the conclusion we we're going to have to replace the water supply for Elmira altogether. And, and we'll, that, we'll get to that in a sec, but I just want to ask you, was the contamination worse in the south end of Elmira versus the north end of Elmira? Could, was it at the beginning, noticeable? It was worse, at the beginning, it was worse from the north. Oh. Yeah. Now that well, but it was it was migrating in different directions. I mean, it, it's again, not a neat package. Uh, the well we drilled at the south end of Elmira was we deemed to be within practical limits when we first drilled it as part of a temporary solution. Right. That but was a solution, but that was a solution to provide water for Elmira. Yes. Okay. But when, you're talking about, but, but when you're talking about pump and treat. Yeah. Where are you pumping the water closer, into? Further up closer to the, uh, the Unirail plant. Yeah, but but how is that done? What are you pumping it into? You're just pumping it into a, a, a tanker or what, what's going on? It, it went through a process and uh, yeah, it would be uh, pumped out on the surface after, but after it was treated at least. And but so but when you, but, but when you pump it, but when you pump it, I'm just trying to visualize this for a second. When you're yeah, pumping but, it out, what are you, what are you pumping it into? <laughs> you really can't know where to pump it, but basically into the sewage system. But I have to tell you too that the pump and treat solutions that we came up with with ultraviolet was not at a scale that would actually be a solution okay. for the water supply. And okay. We quickly came to that conclusion, right. uh, and and uh, so as I said, we drilled this temporary well of the well of the south of Elmira, yep. knowing it was yep. only temporary that the plume would eventually get there. But we were buying time. And we were trying to develop a pump and treat technology to implement at scale, but it, that was a, we never made it. I mean, we, okay. we developed a technology to treat it, but not at scale. Not to the scale that was needed for this no. size of so a problem. Obviously, that we needed a pipeline. Okay, and I'll get to that in a sec, but I just want to ask you now. So the people of Elmira who are impacted by this, you, you, you realize it's, it, there, there's no uh, uh, impact, uh, a dermal impact. Obviously, you can't ingest it. So people are what? They can still shower? Or what, what is it they can do with this water? 
Well, we determined, as you said, that there was no dermal absorption, so you could take a shower. So you might be infected, but you wouldn't smell. <laughs> <laughs> so what we had to do was provide alternative water supply. We stepped, set up water stations all over the place. There were okay. places you could go for, you know, the large jugs of, of bottled water, right. both in Elmira and in uh, in Waterloo and Kitchener. So we, uh, you know, we had to, people could avail themselves of clean water, right. but, not, right. but not in a handy way, you know, at all. It was still a, a great inconvenience and obviously not anything like a, a permanent solution to the problem. So you've got you've so you you're supplying them with water bottles of water and there's yeah. water stations that yeah. you're probably pumping some good water into. You create well, that, the well. Water, that water came out of the Tri City water system. Right, and you're creating the well. You created a well in the south end uh, that's outside of the plume or the the danger area, we'll yeah. say. But you need a longer term, uh, more permanent type solution Absolutely. for water supply for Elmira. Because it was evident that any remediation technology that might be employed um, would be tens of years in actually achieving. Right. Yeah, it's going to take decades to resolve this problem. And clearly we've seen um, it has been decades. Yeah. And no end yeah. in sight. That's right. So, but I'm sorry, go ahead. No, so, so, so you realize you've got to come up with a, a, a permanent or a better water solution to right. deal with this. And, and so how did that come about? Well, we determined that given the, the way the plume was advancing over time, that there was no solution in terms of groundwater in Elmira, not, not no permanent safe solution. Um, you know, we, we, so we had the Tri-City water system in place and uh, we recognized very quickly that uh, the solution to the problem on a long-term basis would be to build a pipeline from Waterloo to Elmira up Highway 86. And it was, from an engineering point of view, it's a pretty straightforward solution to build a pipeline. Right. But the Ministry of Transportation had a policy that didn't allow major utilities on highways. So we had to get around that, But what, which we did. We dealt with the London office of the, uh, of the Ministry of Transportation. And, yes. Uh, and an old colleague of mine, Andy McConnell, we worked on projects together and managed to... Uh, override that that policy uh, provision provision could they could they could they make that decision at their office or did it have to go to the minister no i think that was made in london at the, at the okay. regional office of the ministry yeah okay and, right. and of course time time was of the essence you oh yeah absolutely and, and obviously the ministry of the environment had already been sidelined they were at this point just spectators yeah so you were just what, keeping them updated on what was happening? Yeah. Yes. We, we, did, we didn't pussyfoot around. We were pretty direct in our communications. Did, did, did you let them know you weren't happy? Pardon? You, did you let them know you weren't happy with their performance? <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us about putting uh, this uh, pipeline together. Um, did it take a, a, a while to get together or, or what, what was involved with that? Oh, no, it, it happened very quickly. Once we had uh, secured permission, I guess I could say, from Southwestern, the South, the, excuse me, the regional uh, offices of the, of the Ministry of Transportation, uh, the design and construction went very fast. I mean, it's pretty, it is a very straightforward project. Yeah, so once that pipeline was in place, then uh, the people of Elmira, their, their water system, 
could be hooked into this pipeline that came from Waterloo. They, they were then drinking the same water as Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge. Right, right. Yeah. Now, what about what about people with wells in the area? Yeah, some of those were impacted. There were private wells even within the in the Plume area, the, you know, the area of, of Elmire, and uh, those wells were. My recollection is that they were shut down with the uh, agreement of the people that were involved. They didn't want to contaminated water either. And right. then it was the option of being hooked up to the, uh, you know, the municipal water system, which which happened in a few cases. It wasn't a large number of cases, but there were a few. But uh, what was uh, Uniroyal's participation like uh, during this time? You, their chief scientist was David Ash. Wally Ruck was the president of, of Uniroyal Canada at the time. And Wally played sort of a hands-off role. Their primary, David Ash was very much involved. Their, their position was defensive. The thing that concerned them the most, maybe the only thing that really concerned them was legal liability. That's the, David Ash was our principal point of contact. And uh, I know that doesn't sound well, but he showed no empathy for the situation or the, or the concerns we've got to regard to public health. It was all- That, that was your impression. Interest. That was my impression, yeah. And we I, had, David and I had some, calamitous conversations <laughs> well, like like over causation yes Ca- causation and what was the company going to do about it it's it's almost uh unbelievable to think that they would argue causation <laughs> well they argued everything they could argue they uh, wow. they would argue that uh, ndma was not as carcinogenic as we said it was they would argue, well, it couldn't have, couldn't have been them. This couldn't have happened. That couldn't have happened. But, I mean, they, they went for broke in the, in the, on the defensive. Well, I guess the, the question one might have is, it, let's say it was leaching into the water supply for a few years. Is yeah. that even conceivable? Oh, yeah. If it hadn't been detected when it was detected, if we hadn't done the things that you know, I'm describing to you now, sure, that contamination would have continued to spread. Right, but let's say it was detected when it was detected. I mean, did we never? You never did find out how far back that went, though, correct? No, we never did. So it could have been. The records didn't indicate anything prior to the to the notification. Right. So I guess we have to go with the MOE records that it was. They found it within three months of the last time they tested, or whatever it was. Right. I mean, you could conclude that, and that is a. Not a not a defensible position, but you could. Yeah, but you know what? That's early detection, which is positive. Um, I guess to the other side of it, I, I, I was just surprised though with the UNRO position on causation, trying to say it wasn't as uh, dangerous as people thought it was. Well, that, was yeah. that and uh, you know they, I mean it sounds ridiculous though to say, but they defended their disposal uh, practices and anything that, that that attracted liability to them. They would challenge. So a scientist suggested that their disposal practices were correct. No, they claimed it. Yeah, and they're scientists, right? <laughs> well, David Ash was their chief scientist. David Ash was their chief scientist. He's a scientist, and they were suggesting that what they were doing was correct. Well, there was, yeah, we were overblowing the situation that uh, 
you know, that their disposal practices over the years hadn't been what they we determined they were in the end. And, uh, yeah, all of those things were, were contentious. And, you know, David had a doctorate in, in chemistry. He was a, not a slouch. He was a right. very, very intelligent man. But he was a company man. Yeah. And uh, yeah. whatever was good for the company was fine with David. It turned out. So while you're scrambling to get a handle on all this and yeah. um, coming up with a water supply solution. Yes. Um, I guess you're all building a case here as well. Oh, yeah. We were building the case through our consultants, CH2M Hill and also e-logic, ecologic or epidemiologists. We were building the case, plus our own investigation. Uh, you know, through our own laboratory and uh, and through our own engineering staff, all of these, together with our lawyer, uh, Robert Taylor, who was uh, the lead uh, counsel for uh, Gardner Roberts, we hired yeah. in Toronto. So I'll ask you more about that in a moment, but I just want to step back for a second and ask about the sure. communication plan or what have you that the region utilized during this time. I mean, you're a resident, Ken Sealing's a resident uh, in Elmira, um, what, what was sort of the approach that you were taking uh, in terms of communication on this issue? The we decided very quickly, almost instantly, that all of our communication on this matter would be totally open. We would hold nothing back whatsoever. And we didn't. Uh, we went door to door. Ken Sealing went door to door talking to people, as an example. We mm -hmm. held uh, public meetings, uh, press conferences. We shared everything. And as a result of that, uh, although people were quite concerned and there was the, uh, you know, to, to, to sort of adversarial positions between different people in the town, we gained public trust. We had absolute public trust. There was nobody yeah. saying, you guys are crazy. Uh, they, they, they believed us and they believed that we would ensure on their behalf uh, that things were done properly. So yeah. it was a, it was a exhaustive public communi public communications program. Yeah. It was undertaken right on the ground, and it was it was very successful in that I think it ameliorated a lot of concern. Right, people realizing that this wasn't being swept under the rug. This was take, being taken very seriously. Yeah, and that's and that's like uh, if you don't have good communication right off the hop, I mean, fears, misinformation. That's right. Just just builds and sometimes entrenches in a community, and it's hard to overcome that later on. Yeah, yeah, and so and, it was it was a good program. Yeah, and you you mentioned you had, you had someone who was uh, an employee of Uniroyal living across from you. What was the general mood in the town uh, with respect to those that worked at Elmira or at Uniroyal and, and those that didn't? I don't think it was it wasn't a belligerent kind of situation. It was a situation on the one hand where those who were not employed by Uniroyal were obviously very concerned about the health implications of all this. I think that the Uniroyal employees were similarly concerned about that. But they were also concerned, they had an, an additional concern with respect to the security of their employment. So they had a double whammy in the sense that uh, the, their employer was really under the gun. And, uh, and also they were drinking the same water as everybody else. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were little temper flare ups now and again, but nothing, nothing really all that serious. Um, you know, sometimes it's spilled over into the neighborhood or it spilled over a little bit into the into the playground I mean, the kids would talk about this and uh, and for my own part I mean it was impossible I mean I was working seven days a week 
literally all hours. So I was never mm -hmm. home. But around the, the dinner table, it was almost impossible to not talk about these things. Yeah. You know, and I've got my two girls who are there, and they were sworn to relate nothing that was ever said at home. <laughs> and they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> that would be tough. I mean, that's a that's like that's a, a very significant issue in a community. I can't think of anything more uh, you know, more drastic, uh, more concerning than your water supply, right? I yeah, mean, that's a that's basic right, right. <laughs> life aspect there. So, yeah, I mean that that would be quite the conversation. So, <laughs> just, yeah. just on on water, and we you know we, we've mentioned that uh, groundwater is a major source of water for the region. Yes. When you go through an experience like this, um, you know you, sometimes you hear these concepts like, oh, you know, the pipeline from Lake Huron or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and we have the Grand River right beside us, I guess. I don't know how that comes into play, but was there discussion it, it, about looking at it, these other alternatives? Yeah, it does come into play. You asked earlier about where would this have gone had it not been detected and allowed to you know, continue on. Right. The contamination, the same contamination that we're talking about here was flowing into the Canagajig Creek, which abuts the Unaroyal property. Canagajig uh -huh. Creek is part of the Grand River watershed. Oh, so it would begin to migrate into the, into the watershed as well. And so anyway, yeah, we, we did look at alternatives. We looked at a lot of these alternatives, actually, when we were doing the, the master water supply strategy just a little bit before this. So it wasn't a new topic in that sense. And people suggested, you know, as you mentioned, the pipeline to Lake Huron. And uh, as I've pointed out to others over the past, you know, the pipeline's you think you put it up, you hold the map up and north is right. up, runs downhill, right? <laughs> Just put the pipeline in and run through it. But actually, the topography between here and Georgia Bay is not quite that regular. Right, and right. So you got that working against you. But but at the time, at the, at the time that you're dealing with this, so, I mean, the general view was, if we get this under control, our groundwater and, and continue to protect it, the aquifer, the groundwater, would be able to supply all the water we as a community need in this area. Well, that was that was a concern. The not the pipeline was not on the not in the cards. However, right. uh, from a from a quality point of view and a quantity point of view, we had to we did investigate alternative sources. And one of the things that we 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 investigated uh, water supply is a matter of peaks and valleys. I mean, it surges and and uh, and then the demand drops off and surges again at different times of the day. So you need to be able to balance the flow. And one of the ways to do that during periods of a low demand was to pump water into the aquifer called artificial recharge and okay. store that water, store that water in the, in the aquifer, which is right. largely forest rock, and then pump it out when you need it at a peak time. So that's one way to manage the water supply. And we did that. And we got to be very recognized experts in doing that. Okay. The other thing that you mentioned was the Grand River. And, uh, it, again, we pumped water. By that time, we had pollution in the Grand River fairly well under control. I mean, the Grand River had been a bit of pretty dirty river in its industrial days. Uh, but but we, it, to the point where we could pump water into the aquifers adjacent to the river, again, right. artificial research, but using river water, right. take it out uh, further down the river, pump it across the south of Kitchener, to our new Mannheim water treatment plant. Oh, so wow. We pump it out of the river. Yep. Pump it into the aquifer. Take it out down the river. Pump it across 
go, let it go through settling ponds and sort of a very, very primary treatment. Yeah. And manage the flows again, peaks and valleys, pump it across the south of Kitchener to Mannheim. And, uh, and then that went into the Tri-City water study. So that was a substantial augmentation to our supply. That must, However, have, been, uh, that must have been exciting times coming up with these concepts. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this was, I was really lucky. I had a, a, from an engineer and planning point of view, a terribly interesting career. Yes. But, you know, there, there's a wrinkle in everything because in the river water, then we discovered a substance called cryptosporinium. <laughs> <laughs> Mother Nature, don't mess. <laughs> a biologic contaminant. Now we were, we were able to remove the cryptosporidium yeah, yeah. through our treatment process, but we became an expert on that and wound up doing consulting assignments in Minnesota and California for the very. Wow. <laughs> let me uh, let me ask you, Jerry. Um, wh where was the GRCA with respect to Elmira? Were they involved at all with respect to that? No, not in an operational sense. They were certainly kept in the loop. Right, and uh, the GRCA has always been a great source of uh, of information and, and help yep. uh, for this area. It's, it is one of the signal grand conservation authorities, that, which I understand that our current or their current premium is kind of defanged a bit. Okay, now yeah, 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 and, yeah, and which I think was is and a wrong thing to do. And wrong thing to do. Yeah, yeah, I know, defanged and defunded. Um, yeah. What? Uh, Okay, let's talk about, uh, you know, getting our pound of flesh here. What, uh, you know, in terms of the region and Uniroyal and the MOE, how did that go? Which part of it, Rob? I'm sorry. Just... This is where we're bringing our claim against Uniroyal now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we launched a suit against Uniroyal. We did finally settle. It, the money was uh, primarily for remediation. Right. Not for damages. But for mediation, and uh, the deal there was about forty million. But of course, you have to remember that's that that's, that's what a million was worth a million. Yeah, what what <laughs> were the negotiations like with uh, Uniroyal uh, uh, during that process? Were you involved in that? Yeah, very legalistic. You know, it was it was <laughs> yeah, very legalistic. You're, you're telling me a story about the time you met with David Ash at your office. No. <laughs> Well, as I mentioned, David and I had some unusual conversations, but we were still in the Marshall Center, and I, David came to my office. I, don't, I think he might have asked for the meeting at this particular time. And uh, so he was in my office. My secretary came in with a tray of tea and uh, said, would I make a cup of tea? And by this time, I had had it with David, and I said, no, he wouldn't like a cup of tea. He's leaving. <laughs> <laughs> I, you should have asked asked if you wanted a glass of water from <laughs> we had some other meetings that involved our lawyers on both sides as well and uh, and a uh, unirol in Connecticut as well and uh, they were they were contentious meetings we were very much on opposite sides of the of the case the um uh, it's interesting that uh, you know today uh, if something like that, this were to occur, you'd, you'd, you'd see a class action lawsuit being started on behalf of residents against. Yes, probably. Back then, though, there was nothing like that, though, was there? Well, I, I legally, I suppose there, there would have been that opportunity. But no, we didn't. It was never talked about, actually. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any. You're not aware of any claim brought by any citizen. Oh, no, uh, oh, no. no, not at all. No, it didn't go and, that route. And were you were you aware of anyone that 
suffered as a result of this carcinogen in the community? The answer to that is no. Um, we launched uh, longitudinal studies through our public health department to track the health of people in Elmira that had been uh, that were willing to participate in our in our long-term studies. Uh, at the time, we didn't couldn't establish a direct link. I mean, cause and effect within the time frame that we were dealing with. And I don't, of course, longitudinal studies are for the very purpose of examining what happens over the longer term. Right. And uh, and I don't. I'm not current. I'm simply not current. Yeah, but we did launch those studies. Yeah, I guess it's something that you wonder about. So the 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 the, the damages that were paid by Unirail were for all the work that the region had to do with respect to reestablishing the water supply, monitoring yeah. uh, other remedial yeah. work, that sort of thing. I mean, at the time, it, or in that time period, um, we did notice different, we followed different cases of, of cancer that people uh, presented with. And, right. uh, you know, circumstantially or emotionally, you could say, well, that's linked to the drinking water. Yeah, very interesting. And, and Jerry, just we're going to wrap up. But uh, what, what's your sort of lasting thoughts on this this particular issue? Well, I think it was a, in, in a broad sense, it was a wake up call for Ontario with respect to uh, industrial pollution and how it could be handled. And uh, the Walkerton crisis did come a few years later. And because of the experiences we went through, although the nature of the contamination was different in, in Walkerton than it was in Elmira. A lot of the, the, the way you would approach a problem like this, even in terms of public communications, were, were uh, really instructive. And, and so a lot of the things that we did in Elmira, I think were adopted as practice. So there was a very long-term implication in, in that sense. And, uh, but you know, these things have been flow politically. Uh, you go through a period after a crisis like this and the restrictions and the monitoring and all of that ramp up. And then you yep. have somebody that comes along and says, oh, yeah, this environmental stuff's getting in the way of development. Yeah, that's a good point. I think we'll end on that point. Jerry, listen, thank you very much for your time today and sharing oh, with us, uh, your firsthand knowledge on this very important moment in the history of the region. All the best to you. Thank you, Rob. Uh, thank you for listening to another edition of the Old Grey Mayors podcast. If you have any ideas for stories or people you would like us to interview or reach out to, please feel free to contact us and thank you again.